From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Anna Bernasek. What's the wildest technology you've encountered in a science fiction movie? Is it being able to cure a disease with a single treatment? Maybe having the clothes you wear have amazing characteristics from the natural world, like being as strong as spider silk, or eating food that's tailored for your own body's biochemistry. Whatever it is, chances are it's already in the works to becoming a reality. For example, advances in biomachines and biocomputing are changing the relationship between biology and machines. It's already becoming increasingly possible to use your own brain signals to control precise neuroprosthetics. Michael, it's amazing, really. And even though the full impact may be years away, we're seeing key applications right now, particularly in health and agriculture. Exactly. And over the past five to 10 years, we've been seeing proof-of-concept-focused experimentation emerge from the lab and move into the marketplace, particularly in healthcare and agriculture, as you said. And from there, it can really take off to other areas and you know, even society more broadly. So what does this mean? We've heard about the industrial revolution and the digital revolution. We're now heading into a bio-revolution. And this is going to transform the economy and society in five key ways. First, materials produced with biological means could be more sustainable and help us better manage our natural resources. Secondly, biological innovation has made R&D more precise, which will enable the spread of personalized medicine and precision agriculture. And third, our ability to reprogram life, both human and non-human organisms, is growing. This could lead to breakthroughs in disease prevention and treatment. It's also allowing us to improve the yield of agriculture. And as if that weren't enough, the discovery possibilities of research and development will likely increase due to automation, technologies like machine learning, and new sources of biological data. And finally, in what's probably the most science fiction-like impact, a new generation of biomachine interfaces is being developed that rely on connections between humans and computers. These have uses ranging from restoring sensory function to the brain to using DNA to actually store data for computing. It's a lot to take in. So, Michael, you are one of the world's leading experts right now on the bio-revolution. You just published this incredibly comprehensive report, making sense of what's happening. Well, you're very kind for calling me an expert, uh, but we did spend some time over the course of almost a year studying the potential of biology. And this is you know, at the molecular level. This is at the level of cells and organisms. We also looked at you know, how biology can connect with other types of technologies and even using biology for computing. And what we tried to do is understand what kind of impact that could have. And what we discovered was just the great breadth of impact that it could have, you know, up to two to four trillion dollars within a couple of decades. And so for all of those reasons, as well as the pace at which technology is changing, we really do think we're right in the middle of a biological revolution. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about on today's podcast is all the solutions to today's huge problems that confront us, whether it's COVID or whether it's climate or, you know, any of these things. BioRev really is the potential way out. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know if it's going to solve all of our problems, but I think what we've discovered is that many of the problems that face us today have potential to have biological solutions. Yeah, and then with everything, of course, there are going to be risks. Well, there are these real risks. Editing life or programming life, uh, it's, it's incredible that, in fact, you can think about the way that life has evolved. There's a code to it that we can reprogram. 
Uh, but at the same time, those risks are real. And some of these risks are similar to risks that we've seen in the digital realm. Questions about privacy, for instance, the fact that you know, you don't actually have to sequence an entire population to be able to, to identify a lot of people within a country if you have some genetic material. But then some of these risks are somewhat unique to biology. Um, life finds a way. It's self-replicating. Uh, it tends to want to live on and, and create new generations. And so it doesn't really respect country boundaries, for instance. And so if something gets out into the wild, into our ecosystem, will there be unintended consequences? We'll need to think about that. Um, and then if you actually manipulate you know, a, a human genes, and, and for very good reasons, a lot of the diseases that we suffer from at least have some genetic component, and we do have the technology to be able to manipulate those, but you know, not perfectly. And so you, know, you wonder again, what does that mean if we're manipulating something that's so tied up in who we are, which is our genetic makeup? And then, you know, does that actually pass on to future generations if we actually, you know, start to do germline editing? And, and so I think a lot of these questions, you know, come to the fore as, as things that we need to manage. Now, one of the encouraging things is actually this field has a history of being proactive in understanding that, you know, what's possible from a scientific standpoint and then have real dialogue as a society. What is it that we want to allow at what time? But can't you imagine like a, a room full of brains that have been grown that are able to solve our problems and all that sort of thing? Like, I mean, you know, like anything, we could do anything. What is the science fiction you've been watching or reading? Actually, Michael, I don't watch a ton of science fiction, but I, I do think about that movie Avatar where they created this sort of hybrid human avatar species. And, you know, it just kind of got me thinking about all this. Well, that's definitely something we want to understand, both the potential for good and how to avoid the pitfalls. So let's start with a picture of the science that's happening. Where might all these exciting advances lead? Well, let's find out. Our guests today are two people doing truly amazing work, literally on the very frontiers of where these advances are taking place. Jason Kelly is the founder of Ginkgo Bioworks, a biotech company that describes itself as the organism company. Uh, Jason, welcome to Forward Thinking. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Uh, Jason, uh, first of all, a trivia question. Why is it called Ginkgo Bioworks? And then uh, what does it mean to be the organism company? The way Ginkgo thinks about the world is we, we think of biology as something that can be programmed sort of like you'd program a computer. Uh, and the reason that's not a crazy idea is that inside every cell is digital code in the form of DNA, right? It's A, T, C's, and G's, not zeros and ones, but you can read it with DNA sequencing or, or genomics, like the Human Genome Project, and you can write it with DNA synthesis and DNA printing, and if you can read and write code and you have a machine that can run the code, which is sort of how we think of a cell, well, well that's programming, right? And, and so what Ginkgo is, is really a, a giant compiler and debugger for programming genetic code. And so what comes out of that is newly programmed organisms, uh, organisms that have had their genomes changed to do new things. And so we work with partners who want to have a cell uh, kind of have a new app, a uh, new, new function, and then we'll program that into the genome. And so that, that's sort of why we say we're the organism company, because at the end of the day, uh, what's coming off our platform is an organism with a new genome. Uh, and the name, uh, we wanted to have an, uh, sort of, you know, an, an organism in the name. Uh, and Ginkgo's <laughs> is really, you might remember like high school biology, like kingdom, phylum, order, class, right? So kingdom, plantae, phylum, ginkgoa. And it's the only 
living remaining member of that entire phylum. So it's a complete uh, genetic freak of a tree. It was actually around when the dinosaurs were around. It's considered a living fossil. It's, it's a super interesting plant. And the leaf is very iconic. It's that fan-shaped leaf. So Jason, what you're saying is you really write uh, biological software to operate the machinery of life, I guess. So in a sense, it's like a, a little bit like Microsoft, except that instead of programming PCs, you're really programming cells. Yeah, you got it exactly right. Yeah, and, and, and importantly, like Microsoft, our view is the tools you would use to program a cell are the same regardless of the end application, right? It didn't matter if you were going to use a personal computer for a finance application or in a hospital system or logistics. At the end of the day, you, sh- you should run on Windows and you, and you should use the similar types of programming tools to write the software for those different applications. That, that's exactly how we see programming cells. Ginkgo is a horizontal platform company like you typically see in the tech industry. In other words, our platform, you know, we have large partnerships, same exact platform, uh, and, and, you know, about 50 different projects running on it now. So, so that very, very, we do see ourselves very similarly. I've programmed computers before. I know what ones and zeros are. Why did you say ATGs and Cs? Why, why, what, why, why only those letters when you program? Yeah, so, so all right, so here, here's like the, ma- the magic of biology is that, you know, Mind, mind you, we didn't even discover, uh, you know, the structure of DNA and everything until mid last century, right? But once you once you opened up these cells, you found out that biology had essentially invented the same thing that we later humans came along and invented as the way to store information on computers. Which is, if you want to make a copy of some code, the easiest way to do it is to do it digitally, right? Because if I tell you one one zero zero zero, and then you turn to the person next to you and you say one one zero zero zero. We just transferred information without any loss, right? And so the fact that you break it into, into these digital things, a one or a zero, a thing that, that's a, a single atomic element, it's powerful for information transfer with fidelity. Biology invented the exact same thing because it transfers information across generations. In other words, it wants to pass on genetic information to its children, right? And, and so it, you know, the same exact approach. It's digital, except in this case, these are four chemicals, right? Adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine, that are make up DNA, and and you're basically putting them together into a long chemical polymer, which reads like a piece of computer code. Um, and you can think of it almost like the old computers that were like a piece of magnetic tape, where it would be like zero zero one 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 one. Same thing here. It's a piece of chemical tape, A T C C G G G, that make up the code of life. That's amazing. We're also joined today by Dr. Michelle McMurray Heath. Uh, she's the president and CEO of the Biological Innovation Organization, which many of us know as Bio. Uh, Michelle, welcome. Oh, it's wonderful to join you. So, Bio actually represents many different scientists and entities and organizations that are doing pioneering work on the forefront of the biological revolution. So, what are the goals of Bio? Well, at Bio, we're all about advocating for science and for patients. So, our organization was set up about 25 years ago, around the same time the biotechnology industry was really getting on its feet and really coming to fruition. And since that time, we've focused on what are the impediments to bringing the fruit of that innovation to patients and to consumers. So, that's all we do. We think about how to help scientists be creative and be successful. You've got a lot of uh, policy experience. Can you just tell us a little bit about the policy work that you've been involved with? Sure. I got the policy and politics bug when I was 
doing my uh, MD-PhD and I had a year of breeding transgenic mice. <laughs> I can still remember walking to the vivarium on Saturdays and just watching my mice breed and having to change the breeding partners. And I thought, you know, this isn't taking all of my time. I think I'm going to take some science policy courses in the meantime. And I really got to see that there were people focusing their attention on asking the questions of who funds research? Why do they fund the research that they fund? Who gets to make the decisions about what scientific discoveries are pursued? And I've been obsessed with that question ever since. And so I've gotten to address it on Capitol Hill, working for Senator Lieberman, working in the think tank space when I was starting a program for the Aspen Institute, and then at the Food and Drug Administration as well in the Center for Devices and Radiological Health. So it's been a, a fun career of seeing all of the different hurdles that innovations have to go through to get to patients and figuring out which ones can be um, expedited, which ones can be altered so that patients have confidence and stay safe, but they get the breakthroughs that they're so desperately waiting on. That's terrific to hear. And I think we need more and more scientific expertise uh, in policy. So uh, appreciate all of the contributions that you've made there. And by the way, my my dad's a murine uh, researcher, actually. He's a mouse guy, as it turns out, at least for part of his <laughs> career, too. So it's nice to make that connection. Um, what is it that motivated you um, other than, you know, you wanted to get out of the mouse lab? Um, well, <laughs> well I, was, I was actually raised by two public health leaders in the Bay Area in the 70s and 80s. And both of my parents focused on how you get healthcare to people who perhaps couldn't afford it. My father in the psychological space, my mother in public health nursing. And so I really grew up with that really being in the water, that you try to give back, particularly to the African-American community, and you try to make sure that patients get better. And so when I started to see how exciting lab science was and how interesting it is to not just do an experiment that's been done a million times before, but pursue the types of questions that Jason's talking about, questions that have never been answered and who can make such a difference in people's lives once they are answered, then I started to see that it, it's, it is not just about trying to improve people's access to the medicines we have today. The most important question is making sure we're improving access to the medicines that are coming tomorrow and that we're doing everything we can to make tomorrow come as fast as possible. It's amazing how you know, our family experiences uh, inform our professional lives as well. Um, and and just following on that thread, um, you know, we, you know the the way we pursue solutions is part of your personal area of interest, is what I've heard. And you've also said that this distribution of scientific progress is the social justice issue of the 21st century. Uh, can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, it really harkens back to those communities I grew up near in Oakland, California. You know, I saw communities that were vulnerable, that were underserved. Um, that did face challenges, but their challenges were multifactorial. They needed access to clean air and water. They needed freedom from the fear of climate change. They needed health care. They needed medical breakthroughs because the health care that was available couldn't necessarily serve all of their needs. And so if you think about that, almost every big issue we face today, global warming, clean air and water, access to nutritious foods, medical solutions, 
all of those big unknown questions and big needs can be served by biotechnology. And so if we think that is true, then we have to figure out an equitable way to distribute that research and the fruit of that research once it's achieved. So if we're going to bring communities out of poverty, if we're going to equal opportunity, then we have to make sure that we are spreading the scientific butter around. We have to make sure that the scientific progress is reaching everyone who needs it, particularly the vulnerable communities that may need it more than anyone else. Michelle, just following up on that, I mean, part of getting that access is, you know, making sure that, you know, you reduce costs, right? But I mean, there is, there's other stuff, isn't there, that's involved to sort of roll out sort of the bio-rev to benefit everybody? Well, of course. I mean, it's complex. We need confidence in our breakthroughs and our technology. You know, that means rational regulation that answers patients' needs and concerns, but also doesn't produce undue delays. We need financing systems that pay attention not just to how we bring down the cost of a pharmaceutical that's available today, but that is really future-oriented so that we're also trying to achieve those pharmaceuticals of tomorrow as quickly as possible. Scientists are doing the yeoman's part of this work. I mean, you heard from Jason how his commitment to his science and his research is bringing down the cost of some very critical breakthroughs in biotechnology. And that's happening constantly in science. Scientists are constantly improving. I would just hope we get to the point where our policymakers have as quick a rate of improvement and of success that our scientists have had. So how can we ensure that policy and regulation can keep up, you know, as with the with a pace of scientific progress, um, it's, it's moving quickly. Well, unlike scientific research, policy responds to demand. So, you know, when, when you're a scientist working in a lab, and I've having spent over a decade at the bench, I know this process, you may want an answer like nothing else. You may really want it to happen, but your desire means absolutely nothing because it's up to the science and it's up to your creativity and it's up to the ability to get the experiments to work. But policy listens to people. And so what we really need is a grassroots movement of people who understand the importance of science in their lives and who demand that policymakers show the political will and backbone to get those solutions to them. And that is something I think those of us who communicate about science and who get to speak to different aspects of the public can really help us achieve. Jason, Michelle said you're a terrific scientific communicator. How do you see this playing out? How, how do we actually get the regulation you know, policy uh, to move at the pace necessary so we can capture the benefits of the biological revolution? Uh, I'll answer it. Yeah, I had a question for M- Michelle, oh, if you sure. don't mind, but, uh, before yeah. we jump to it. Yeah, you know, yeah, I find the comment on, on policy really striking that the you know, as you look at what's happening around, you know, COVID-19, where we have this sort of unprecedented moment where uh, biotechnology policy is on the minds of uh, the the public in a way, I I think certainly in my lifetime, I've never seen it before. Um, How do you think about that as as an opportunity or challenge for some of the, the topics you're discussing here around policy? I think COVID is the crucible for our industry. This is the moment where we either show that science can unlock the future and is important to everyone's lives 
and can be delivered in an equitable way or we or we don't. And if we fail, it will set us back decades. But I really think it's it's within our reach. Obviously, the science is going gangbusters. We at Bio have been tracking all of the COVID-related development programs in the industry. And just since January, the industry started over 720 product development programs targeted at COVID, over 180 programs just trying to achieve a COVID vaccine. And they're showing unprecedented success. We've got nine vaccine candidates in late phase two or phase three clinical trials inside of nine months when the previous record for uh, for vaccine development was four years for the mumps vaccine. So the science is going very fast. Now it's up to those of us who interface between the scientists and the policymakers to make sure that policymakers hold up their end of the bargain. And what do I mean by that? They need to adhere to the highest level of scientific integrity and let the scientific process unfold at its own pace. They need to not play political football with either the regulatory process around the vaccines and therapeutics for COVID or the distribution of it. And they need to stand up and be incredibly brave about access and ensuring access to COVID therapies and vaccines. It's critical that we do all three of those steps. And if we do, I think we'll emerge on the other side of this with a different public understanding of science. Um, the head of Mass Bio said the other day his son has cystic fibrosis and knows what it's like to wait on a scientific breakthrough. And he said, Dad, I feel like for the first time, the average American knows what it feels like to wait for a cure. And so we just have to be sensitive to the fact that everyone is in this waiting game with us and respond to what everyone is waiting for. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I think Michelle really nicely described this COVID crucible. I, I think that's 100% true. You know, we have a, a brand called Concentric that's doing sort of workplace and school uh, testing. And so we've been really close to this. So what, what I'll say is, yeah, 100%. I, I think this is a crucible, unique moment for for policy and engaging with the public on biotechnology during COVID. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and an I'll answer your, since Michelle does such a nice job, I'll answer your question sort of pre-COVID, what I would have told you, um, which is, you know, as the cost of biotechnology work is falling, um, you know, with technologies like we're developing at, at Ginkgo and, and other places, what you're seeing is, is biotech starting to move into a broader range of markets than just uh, therapeutics, which is where people mostly engage with it today. So, for example, you're seeing folks working on uh, animal-free leathers. You have things like the Impossible Burger, which is a, a veggie burger that if you, I, I don't know, um, Michael, if, if, if you ever had one? The I have burger. indeed. More than one. Yes. So you bite into this thing, at, you know, it's an Impossible Whopper at Burger King, and, and it bleeds, right? It's a bleeding veggie burger, right? You know, where, well, where's the blood come from, right? It's not a lot of blood in plants. And, and what they did, uh, scientists at Impossible did was... They took the gene for hemoglobin, which makes uh, blood red, and they took brewer's yeast, like you used to make beer, and they programmed it by adding that hemoglobin gene in, and then you brew it up, you make the heme, no cow involved, you put it into that veggie burger, and now it smells right, tastes right, and they're serving it at Burger King, right? And, and so that's a, that's a piece of biotechnology that the public is engaging with, and if you look at how Impossibles approach this, they're very transparent on their website. They show pictures of the fermenters making the hemoglobin. They explain the process of how they did it with the genetic engineering. You know, th that, that's a, a very new way for the public to engage with this technology, and, and they feel the benefit, right? It's a veggie burger that doesn't taste like cardboard. 
you know, that that's a real benefit to people. Uh, and so, so I think that's part of the way you create the um, sort of grassroots uh, support that Michelle was talking about as you start to engage consumers and, and people in, the, uh, in, in more ways around biotechnology than just when they're sick. Jason is right on the money with this. It's so critically important. Imagine if you could engineer fruits and vegetables that taste better, look more attractive, have more protein, have a better nutrition profile, and are actually engineered to grow very well in low light, low soil, hydroponic settings. It would be so wonderful because you could imagine every deserted strip mall in a rural community or an inner city converted to a hydroponic farm that could make these low cost, nutritious and bountiful and high variety crops and sell them in the local markets. And so you'd erase food deserts overnight. So this is the kind of power of this new age of biotechnology, which is just so exciting and thrilling. So, so let me ask you guys, let me follow up on this. Is there any sort of fundamental limit on our capabilities with this? Yeah, I'll take it. You know, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a, there are, there are limits uh, that are temporal. In other words, um, just like a computer in the, you know, today can do a lot more uh, than a computer back in the 50s, right? Um, because of improvements in our ability to sort of design and and program these these machines. Th- that, that There'll be a similar trend here where, you know, as we understand more about how biology works and as our tools for programming get improved, you'll be able to do more things. But absolutely today, there's there are definitely many, many, many projects that you could imagine biology being capable of doing and you don't begin to know how to how to design it to do that, right? Honestly, if you just look at biology like as a technologist, like think how crazy it is, right? Like you, you plant a, a seed, you add air, water, and sunlight, and this thing self-assembles a plant, right? Like out of out of just out of the out of the air, the carbon in the air, it starts building solar panels and all this. I mean, think about the level of of like molecular manufacturing and like you know if if Apple invented that thing tomorrow we'd all lose our minds right you know uh, but but we we kind of write it off because we've seen it you know and and so you you can see all this potential in biology but our ability to to program is extraordinarily limited uh, we don't really understand a lot of how it works um, and the tools to make changes are still uh, really hamstring you and so so we have a lot of room to go in my opinion um, I think this will be the technology of, of the next century here. Uh, and we'll just keep getting better every decade. So that actually brings me, Jason, to my the, the, the most fundamental question for me is, you know, at what point can we really say the bio-revolution has arrived? So, I mean, what is really going to change our lives from this? I'm obviously biased. I'm a, a fan here. But like, like today, you know, half, you know, my dad's a type 1 diabetic, right? So, so he's been you know, taking insulin since he was in his teens. For when he was, I don't know, probably the first 15 years of it, he was taking insulin that you would direct, get from pigs, right? So it wasn't human, wasn't perfect, had certain side effects, right? And then along comes Genentech, uh, first biotech product, human insulin, and now you get the exact same stuff, right? And and today, half of your therapeutic drugs are made with biotechnology. I mean, the the impact of biotechnology already, just in medicine, is astounding on, on people, right? I, but what I think is the new thing that's coming is a year-over-year compounding technical improvement in our ability to use this technology. And you see it very obviously in things like the cost to sequence a human genome, right? Went from $100 million with the Human Genome Project in 2000 to today you can get machines that between $100 and $1,000 will, will sequence a human genome. Right, so you've seen a one million fold 
cost reduction in reading DNA over that period of time. That blows the pants off the rate of improvement in computers. And that, that, that's giving us access to the code. You're seeing a similar rate of cost drop in uh, writing DNA, not quite as steep, but over that period of time, probably about a thousand to ten thousand fold drop in cost. So, so you know, these tools are getting better every year, which means you're going to see more and more applications come out of it. I think that's that's the that's that's really the fundamentally new thing um, is just that compounding technical capability. So we found all of the amazing tooling, which is increasing at this exponential rate. Um, but then, how how does that get from you know, the, the lab into the type of impact on our lives that you talked about, whether it's in food or agriculture or apparel or, or what have you. You know, Michelle, you've spent time on the bench as a lab scientist. You spent time as an executive in a, in a big company. And now, you know, you're running a, an organization that looks across all of these different sectors and places where, you know, biology could have an impact. Um, what does it take to get from the lab, you know, into the marketplace or into, you know, the hands of people who can use some of these products and services? Well, it definitely takes a healthy biotech ecosystem. And by that, I mean the investors, the business people, the entrepreneurs, the risk takers uh, to really set out on those quests that are so important. But I think there's a there's a bigger point here. When I, when I started my career in science, I assumed I would go into academia because I really thought that was the no- noblest way to pursue science. And I think sometimes that is still the public perception. But you know what's really noble? What's really noble are the companies that actually turn out the 95% of all drugs and solutions for patients we have today. We invest tons of, of resources and time and emotion in academic medicine and science, as we should. It's critically important. But we should share some of that regard for the huge amount of risk and courage it takes for our entrepreneurs in the biotech space. Because without the companies that are really focused at making pragmatic solutions for patients and customers, none of that science would turn into real products that change lives. Jason, could you talk a little bit, you know, from your perspective about these real products that can change lives? You know, it's one thing to synthesize heme and lab scale, and then it's a very different thing to have millions of burgers, uh, for instance, just to use one of those examples. What are some of the challenges you have to overcome? Because it seems like sometimes we celebrate the invention, and yet mm. there's a huge process to actually have impact in the world. Yeah, so it's going to vary a lot depending on the type of application, right? So if you're talking about a therapeutic, then it's, you know, the cycle people are very familiar with with trying to get, you know, safety and efficacy proven in a clinical trial. That's really the big hurdle there. Manufacturing in that scenario is is relatively straightforward. Uh, If it's something like, you know, a food product, um, it's almost the opposite. Pretty quickly, you know, you can can do safety studies and and have a good sense. Um, And if you're using things that already come from, nature, uh, you know, the, you're, you're not introducing a new product. The challenge is the manufacturing, right? Like you're saying, how do you get, you know, it's a lot of burgers. The price of meat is very inexpensive. And so you're trying to compete, you know, with existing products out there. Same holds true in, in chemicals. Uh, famously, we had challenges in things like biofuels that uh, never were able to really compete with petrochemical counterparts. And so, so I, I think in certain markets, it'll be a manufacturing problem. And then in other markets, It'll be like any other consumer product, you know, like uh, say high-end leather, right? You know, if you could make a bio-based leather, and there's a number of companies working on this, doing like really amazing work now from things like mushrooms and stuff like that. Uh, the question then is, does the consumer perceive it 
who wants to have an animal-free leather, you know, designer leather bag that they're paying thousands of dollars for, is that, do they perceive it as the same quality? Do they perceive, you know, right? And and so there it's a little more like like Tesla selling that first Roadster, you know, can you you capture the, the consumer imagination? So you'll see these consumer products that have just like any other consumer product, now the challenge is, is convincing people to, to buy it, right? And so I, I think you'll see a wide, a wide variety of uh, kind of go-to-market challenges. But it won't look any different than any other traditional engineering field that's bringing out new products all the time, um, I, I think, at the end of the day. We're just a little earlier in the journey when it comes to biological engineering, right? You know, we, we've been doing mechanical engineering for 400 years on electrical engineering for 150 and computer science for 50 and and now here comes biological engineering while well, we're only you know we only invented genetic engineering in you know essentially 1978 so so it's it's pretty early on uh, in the show well let me just uh, finish with one other question for both of you as we you know get ready to get into the fun lightning round but I think some people hear about all of these amazing advances but then are also nervous they think about you know, the ethical concerns, um, you know, around either, you know, the ecological concerns or what it might mean for we as humans um, and, and things that we might be manipulating uh, when we, we talk about programming life. Um, Michelle, let's start with you. How do you, how do you respond to people who have this concern about, you know, this, this seems like we're playing God? I think scientists always need to be very respectful of human life and the ethics of how best to use technology. But I think that ethical debate has to be informed by solid scientific understanding. I think you can see abuse and misuse in almost any human pursuit. Doesn't matter the field. Um, It only matters the ramifications and so I think scientists are by selection or by training, cautious, skeptical, questioning, and insistent. And that gives me hope that we will continue to see our technologies used in a very responsible way. Thank you. And, and Jason, what, how do you respond when, when people are amazed at what's possible, but then are worried about it too? People should be concerned about powerful technologies and, and whether they're going to be deployed in their interests. I think that's a very healthy concern for people to have. And, and there's no pat answer, right? I mean, you know, we, we have, if you look back across any powerful technology in human history, uh, they've been used for good and ill, right? Um, and so I think you, there's a few tools at your disposal. You know, I think um, as the folks developing the technology, I think having a foundation of transparency is important. You know, so now, I guess three or four years ago in the uh, U.S. was debating GMO labeling. Um, you know, I had a New York Times editorial that said, "I run a GMO company. I think we should label GMOs, right?" And and the argument was, you know, consumers are concerned about what what technology is in their products, and we're saying, "Oh no, no, no you can't know uh, if my technology is in there, right?" And like, what does that tell somebody, right? It tells them that this must be bad. I should be scared of it. Why don't they want me to know about it, right? Um, like, that's just the wrong way to engage with the public. The right way to engage with the public is. We're proud of this technology. We want to actually engage with people who care how their products are made because fundamentally, biology is a better way to make everything, right? It's the original renewable recyclable technology. Of course, you should want to buy GMOs, right? And so, so you know, that, that I think transparency as a footing is one thing that can help you. Um, the, the other is who is building the technology, right? So, so you're seeing 
you know, with like this big challenge around the, the great technology platforms on the on the software side today, places like Facebook and Twitter that, that are coming to this reckoning of I've built this powerful platform and, you know, am I responsible for what people do with it? And I, and I think when it comes to biotechnology, we ultimately have to be responsible for how our platforms are used. And importantly, the developers of the platforms need to care about that, right? We can't, we can't sort of say, hey, we're just a tool. It's not, it's not our fault what you do with us, you know? And, and so, so I think we want to care. And then importantly, we want to have a diverse set of folks building those technologies because the range of people that could be impacted by it is extraordinarily broad, right? So if you think about who's going to be impacted by biotechnology, it does not respect borders, right? So you want to have, you know, folks from the global south involved in the development of new agricultural biotechnologies. That seems like a great idea, right? You know, you want to have underrepresented genders, underrepresented minorities who could be disproportionately affected by a new technology in a negative way. You want them involved in the building so that they can help you see around those corners uh, and, and embed their experiences in the technology itself. That's the most powerful solve, is that as the way the technology is built, safety and responsibility are baked in. And I think that starts with having a broad set of folks actually building it. So, th- so those are the sort of two tools I see, sort of transparency and, and also um, a, a diverse set of uh, scientists and engineers involved in the construction of the technology. So it does come back to science fiction to a certain extent, the old Spider-Man thing, you know, the with great power comes great responsibility, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so if you have a few moments, why don't we go to the lightning round if, if you're willing to play? So there would be quick, quick questions, quick answers. I'll ask each of you, you know, go back and forth. Uh, if you don't like a question or don't like, don't have an answer, feel free to pass. You ready to go? Sure. Rock and roll. All right. Terrific. Uh, Michelle, let's start with you. What's your favorite source of information about biological innovations? Actually, stat. I'm loving stat these days. Jason? Twitter. What is your favorite piece of fiction that touches on biology? Could be TV, movies, you know, reading. Jason? Jurassic Park. No question. Michelle? (laughs) That's a great one. Um, I don't know. I'm still waiting on the teleporter from Star Trek, so... It's good, too. Wonder how that'll feel. Um, <laughs> Michelle, what science fiction innovation would you... Oh, well, you just answered that. Come on. <laughs> Strike this question. Nailed it. We're going to move on. Uh, Michelle, who is your favorite real-life hero in biology? Oh, Francis Kelsey, who is the FDA reviewer that stood up against thalidomide in the 70s. Jason. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I'll say Rosalind Franklin off the cuff, uh, since, you know, f- figuring out structured DNA is sort of the original biological innovation. So she's pretty uh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and should have gotten a piece of the Nobel. Absolutely agree. Yeah, well, uh, Jason, what biological application will arrive sooner than people think? Uh, I would say the, um, like animal free products generally, everything that comes from an animal now is, is going to not in a very short period of time. Michelle? Um, I think new microcrops that have these amazing uh, types of appeal and nutrition. Michelle, what biological application will take longer than people think? Mm. I think repairing the human genome in our complex chronic diseases, it's been elusive. I think it, it's, it always, the complexity keeps revealing itself. Jason? Yeah, anything that interfaces with humans. Fill in the blank. Jason, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about how the science and business of biology is conducted today, what would it be? I guess it would be to um, have the public open their eyes to 
or not take for granted biology. You know, not just engineer biology, but just like the biology that's out there in the world, making our atmosphere and cleaning our water and, you know, basically serving as the, the low level technological support system for life on this planet. We, we take it completely for granted. Michelle? I would have every high school student take a biotechnology entrepreneurship class before they could graduate. Michelle, what job would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing today? <laughs> um, I'd be a costume designer for Broadway plays. How's that? <laughs> That's great. Jason. I always tell my wife that, that I want to be a gentleman scholar with her just supporting me while I do my <laughs> quote research. So that's what it would be. One final question. Much more if noble. You... <laughs> it's really not. It's because I want to the read books somewhere. And... <laughs> for sure, the arts are noble. <laughs> do nothing. <laughs> Jason, what is one piece of advice you'd have for listeners of this podcast? Uh, I'll, I'll do the COVID thing. You know, I, I think um, uh, I think we're all going through a, a uniquely hard time. It's been 100 years since uh, biology did this to us previously. It is uh, a first for everybody. And so we all should be um, kind of looking after each other's backs during this time. I think it's uh, it, it, we're living through a historical moment. Michelle? And I, I'll kind of do the flip side of that. You know, whenever we have moments like this, it's a time to reflect on what's most important in your life. And I would say, do what you love and do it boldly because life's too short. Well, this has, been, advice. This has been extremely uh, interesting, encouraging, and wonderful to speak with both of you. So, um, Michelle and Jason, thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for having us, Michael. Yeah, fun conversation, guys. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Anna Bernasek. Our producer is Lauren Melling and our audio engineer is Colin Warren.